to the AO Trauma North America Mentor-Mentee Interview Series. I'm Stephen Scheinman, an orthopedic trauma surgeon at Harbor UCLA Medical Center. Thank you for tuning in. I would like to remind you that the video recordings of the Mentor-Mentee interviews are available on the AO Trauma North America YouTube channel. And don't forget to check out other Mentor-Mentee interviews on the AO Trauma North America Spotify channel or wherever you get your podcasts. In this episode... I'm excited to bring you an interview with Dr. Larry Bone from the University of Buffalo. Yes, I, I started out as a, as a general surgeon. I was a resident in Buffalo from 1973 to 1978. And during that time, uh, John Border became my mentor. And uh, John was a trauma surgeon who got hooked up with Professor Algauer in the early 70s and uh, learned about AO. And he wanted to uh, teach some of us that. So he sent me over to uh, Davos, which was in the mid 70s, the only real place that they had courses. So I I took the basic course in Davos in the old Forcings Institute uh, in the basement with, uh, with, uh, bones that were that weren't human, but they were real. I think they were pigs or sheep or something. That was 1975, and when I was there, he talked to uh, Martin about uh, sending me over for a mini fellowship that those three month fellowships that they had. And um, so I I spent the winter of '77 with Peter Mater and Davos. I finished uh, my residency uh, and went back to Davos for the winter of 79, uh, mainly because I wanted to ski. But uh, when I finished and started my general surgical practice in, in a small town in upstate New York, uh, I felt I was a fully trained f- fracture surgeon. I'd, I had um, uh, not only been to Davos twice, and I'd taken the courses, but when we were, um, when I was a general surgical resident, we used to alternate fracture call with the orthopedic department. So that when I was on trauma service, every other night, I was doing fracture work. Um, so I, w- I felt very comfortable doing all fractures in this small hospital in Warsaw, New York. But what I realized was that I was vulnerable to to lawsuits. I was not a orthopedic surgeon. I was a general surgeon who happened to be very well trained in fractures. Baron Cloudy uh, was in Davos when I was there in 77. He was doing his his PD uh, at the Institute and we became acquainted and then I used to do some AO teaching with him um, uh, after uh, after I got into practice in general surgery. He, He went to Dallas I think about 1979, 1980, uh, to help train the orthopedic surgeons in Dallas, the AO method, but he couldn't stay. And I, I picked up the phone in May of 1982 to say goodbye to him. And he said, Larry, you ought to come down to Dallas and continue what I'm, what I'm doing here. Why don't you do an orthopedic residency? The next day, Vert Mooney, the chairman, called me up and invited me to come down and interview. 
I, I left a note on my dad's desk that said, I'm going to Dallas to look at an orthopedic residency. Will you round on my patients? And I got the position and, and started uh, the following year in, uh, in uh, July of 83. That's how I became an orthopedic surgeon. Totally because of John Border putting me in Davos and I got to meet some people who, who made this, this whole thing happen. When I was in Buffalo um, as a general surgical resident with, with Dr. Border, with John, um, we were alternating fracture call, as I said, but um, it gave John the opportunity to see the difference between ICU patients who were treated with early fixation, which we did. We, we, we generally plated the femur in those days uh, because we were AO taught. And the, the orthopedic department was still treating frac femur fractures and traction. And, and John told me as he studied the, the ICU patients that um, he, would, he, would, he would see notes in, in the chart patient doing well, patient doing well, patient found dead in bed on the traction patients. And, and he knew why they were dying. And he knew that early fixation made a difference. It saved lives. Um, so when I went to, to Dallas, I'm totally convinced early fixation makes a difference. My, I guess I was there like three months and, and Ken Johnson says, Larry, would you go to this symposium on fat emboli? That's, that, have you seen fat emboli recently? I haven't seen it in the, you know, since, since that time. But they were, that's what uh, ARDS and pulmonary failure, it was fat embolization. And uh, it was a general surgical symposium. And Ken asked me to sit in for him to talk about fat embolization and, and, and uh, fracture uh, fixation and its consequences. The general surgical department in Dallas didn't believe me. They, they absolutely refused to believe that, that, the, that the fracture has anything to, to do with fat emboli. And I wanted to say, where do you think you got the, the fat from? So um, I went to, to Ken and said, we got to do something. And we, we sat down and, and, and put together a prospective randomized study of early fixation of, of the, the femur fractures and had John Weigel, the young general surgical trauma surgeon who didn't believe us to be part of the study. So he would, we, you know, it's, it's, we had to have somebody offset our bias we did the study for two for two years, and 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 you know the the results. Ken was was, uh, as you know, did his fellowship in Seattle and knew early fixation uh, from his time there, and and that it made a difference. Uh, so we were on the same page. We just had to convince the, the general surgeons, and then ultimately we convinced the the world. Uh, John John was a character for for sure. Um, he 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 was very smart. He uh, he had several degrees and and was a uh, anyway he was he he was about a, a decade ahead of his time. Stuff that he was writing in the seventies that people didn't believe turned 
turned out to be correct in, in the, um, he had a terrific brain and he read everything and remembered it. Um, he, uh, he, he, he knew everybody. He was, he was well respected. He was more respected outside of Buffalo than he was inside of Buffalo, which is not uncommon. Uh, and I'm, I don't really know when he and, and Dr. or Professor Allgaier got, got together, but it was the early 70s. And, um, and he, you, knowing what he knew and having his little mini uh, lab in, in our small ICU in, in, in the hospital in those days, um, he, uh, he and Martin got, really hit it off. Ted Hansen once told me that, of course, Ted, Ted was during early fixation in the early 70s too, uh, because he knew it worked. But he said, I, I didn't know why it worked until I met John Border. And then not only did I know it worked, but now I know why. That's, that's the kind of brain John had. He, he was well above uh, his time. Um, he, it, it, it was a great time to, to be with him because he, he, he was digesting all this new information. And it, it was, we were pretty primitive in the early 70s. I mean, uh, Viome cycle ventilators just came out. Um, management and the resuscitation and the management of the trauma patient was, was, was primitive. I, my first paper uh, was, was in open fractures uh, that I wrote for my, uh, you know, uh, for the graduation in, in uh, 78. It was published in Journal of Trauma. And uh, when I, we were, we were doing um, early washouts and, and fixation of all open fractures. Uh, we used to plate them in those days and people said, oh, you plated an open tibia, it had to get infected. We had we had 50 cases of all kinds, and the only one that got re that got infected was a, a psychotic patient who jumped and had an open calcaneal fracture. We fixed it, and she jumped again and 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 split it apart, and she got infected. But we had essentially no infections in our open fractures that I reviewed. Uh, and when I was looking at the, the literature at that time, uh, writing the paper in '77. People didn't know what to do with open fractures. They 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 put them in. They wouldn't wash them out properly. They'd put them in casts, and then they they'd puss out and they'd say, "Oh, you can't do anything for this." Uh, it that that's how primitive we were. Uh, so it's it's we've come a long way. The early AO, as you know, in the in in the 60s, you couldn't get. Uh, the the uh, the trays the the instrumentation and and implants until you took the course, and the only place to take the course was in Davos. There was a course in Columbus, Ohio, which was really a vet course in the 70s, but otherwise you had to, to go to to Davos. And when I was thinking about talking to you about this, think of the hundreds of courses that go on every year. And they started out in Davos as the single course that you had to take in order to use the instrumentation. Another thing that I've said before is that it was a good thing that the Swiss 
were the inventors of the philosophy and the instrumentation and implants because they could take those royalties and put them back into research and education and uh, and all the money that they've spent that that brought the world up to their standards. If the if a U.S. group of surgeons invented that, developed it, where do you think those royalties would have gone? Yep, <laughs> yeah, and it would never have gotten out. It would have never gotten out. But the Swiss, the the professors in Switzerland made enough money without having to to take royalties and uh, and we're very you know we're very lucky that that the swiss were the way they were the decision was because of my son um, uh, my son christian uh enlisted in the army um not not too long after 9 11. Um, he went in in may of uh 03 um went went through through basic then joined the, the 101st Airborne, deployed to Iraq twice. And his second deployment, he was driving a Humvee and it, uh, an IED, an, a roadside bomb, blew up, blew up the hum, Humvee. Um, fortunately, it was a, a reinforced Humvee. The, the engine was totally gone. Uh, there was a 10-foot crater, um, but he, he was injured, but he's okay. Um, I, at, at, at that time, had no idea that I could get into the military, had no thought about going into the military, but I wanted, I was a natural. I was a general surgical trauma surgeon. I was an orthopedic trauma surgeon. I, I would be great at, at helping those kids that got themselves blown up. And, um, I was at a military reception after the OTA um, because I had been in Landstuhl as a, as a Landstuhl scholar and they were looking for orthopedic surgeons because they were, it, the war had gone on so long, they, they had a critical shortage. And I said uh, to one of them, I said, oh, I would enlist if I wasn't so old. And they said, oh, but you're not so old. <laughs> I said, really? Yeah, they said there was an age waiver because of the critical shortage. So I put my foot in my mouth and went back to Buffalo, went to, to the recruiter. And it took me almost two years to get in uh, because of all the age requirements. And the, I was commissioned as a lieutenant colonel. It's not something I would have done if Christian hadn't enlisted, hadn't been injured. and it, it put me in a position of wanting to help out and give back to the military for, for what they did for him. The, um, the deployments were, were interesting because as a, as a reserve um, physician in the, in the Army Reserve Medical Corps, by, by regulation, they can't uh, deploy us for more than 90 days. Um, that's boots on ground, that's in, that's in country. I did a, a 90 day de deployment in 2012. It wasn't too bad. We weren't that, that busy. Um, it, we saw some, some stuff, but it wasn't too bad. 
when I got back, my, my commanding officer uh, asked me to uh, lead, to command a forward surgical team out of New York City. And they were deploying six months later. If I command the unit, I have to go for the duration. And that was nine months. That deployment was busy. We saw, uh, as they say, a lot of shit. Um, interesting, uh, you, you don't know what you're, I, I had seen it, I'd read the books, I had, I had um, been, I tried to get myself as prepared for it as possible, and you can't. You, you know, these young kids come in with their legs blown off, um, it's, it's just something you never see in a civilian practice. Um, but you, like any trauma, like any trauma patient, you, you, you just deal with it. It's the aftermath that, that gets to you. And, um, uh, I, I came, I came, I came back and I said, I'm not going, I'm not going back there again. I, I'd had it. I'd seen enough. I'd done enough. A year later, I would have, I would have gone back. But, but when I turned 68, they, um, they, they said that that's the age that you have to, 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 to retire. So I, so I, I didn't um, extend, as they say. Um, it's, um, it is a funny world because you're there with a small, with a small group of, of medics, nurses, uh, other docs, um, that all you're doing is waiting for the next uh, medevac uh, helicopter to come in. You, you, you have no other responsibility. It, 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 your adrenaline is running all the time and you're, you're alert all the time because we, we were in a forward uh, operating base that was mortared uh, almost every day. And so not only were we worried about the, the next casualties, but we were worried about ourselves. Your brain gets fried after nine months of, of, of that. You, you really are beat up. Um, but in, I, I wouldn't have gone back when I came out, but a year later I would have, and I wouldn't change it. I'm not the same. I have some PTSD. Um, I, um, but it was, it was the most rewarding thing I could have ever done. And I've done a lot of rewarding things, uh, but taking care of young, young soldiers. I, I went in with the mindset that, which was the wrong mindset that I don't want to lose a single patient. If they get to us alive, we're going to keep them alive. And we had some very dead young people um, that no blood pressure, no pulse, no, and, and within 15 minutes, you can, you can resuscitate these kids with the, with the way we're set up um, and the, the, the walking blood bank that, that we had, we, 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 pounded, we pounded fresh blood into them and, and we could save them and we did. Um, but that was a silly thing for me to want to, to emphasize because that if, we, if I hadn't achieved that, I, I, I would have, it would have been difficult for, for me to deal with. My, part of my problem was, was my son who had been injured 
and was in a similar situation a few years before that. So every uh, casualty that came in, I not only thought about the casualty, but I thought about their folks back home because I was I was one of those folks at one time. And and that that got to me in about six months into it, I said, uh, you got to stop this. You got to become much more objective. You can't be living the lives of all of all these kids that are coming in. But um, and I did, I, I figured it out. But it, 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 it was a hard thing. It was a very hard thing. Oh, man. Um, the, the most important thing that you can do is listen to your patients. Um, we don't, over the years, we've, we always get too busy and we don't spend the time to, to listen to what their problem is, to then educate them on what their problem is. Um, I know that's hard because it takes time and, and time is money. But if, but if you do that, and, and then you have an educated patient who will help themselves help you make them better. It, it, it makes all the difference in the world. I was very lucky that I didn't have to have a large um, elective practice. I was, I was really a trauma surgeon. Um, I, I morphed into some total joints uh, because of the county hospital I was in. But I didn't have to do a large private practice to make my money. So the, the patients I had, I had the luxury of spending time with them and, and, and getting to know them and then listening to them and then examining them. Put your hands on them. Find out what's wrong. Don't, don't look at the x-ray and the MRI and the CT scan and look at your computer tell them, oh, you need this and walk out of the room. And they go, what do you say? <laughs> what do you say? They had all these questions for you. So listen, <sighs> yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of that. And I, and um, um, besides the military ac aspect of what I did, because that was rewarding in, in many ways, but um, educating young surgeons, uh, being, I was, program director for a number of years and then chairman for, for 12 uh, in Buffalo. And, and teaching residents to be good surgeons and good doctors uh, is, is extremely rewarding. And you know that because you're in, you're in the same position I used to, to be in. And, um, and you're one of the people that I taught so that we're here talking together. But when you, when, you, when you have that opportunity, you realize that your knowledge and your experience and hopefully your wisdom uh, is exponential. Every patient, every trauma patient that you've seen in your life, I've had, a, I've had an effect on because I affected you in how you manage that patient. And then you multiply that by all the residents that I, that I trained and all the patients that they've seen. Um, but what could be more re rewarding than to pass on 
your knowledge, wisdom, and skill. And that goes to all those other patients as, as, they, as the residents go out and, 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 and treat them. Uh, I've, got, I've got a few. I will, I will uh, the most memorable one, uh, maybe because it was the most scary, was when I was a general surgical resident. And I know we're talking orthopedics, but uh, I got to tell you this story because it is, it is, uh, it's a retarded young boy about 16, 18, and he's got a, an upper GI bleed. And I'm a third year resident, but I happened to be a, a, chief, a chief resident at that time because of the way things worked out. So he's my patient. I'm going to do surgery on him. And the attending yeah, uh, is obviously going to help me. And I've got a, a, a junior resident with me. So we go to surgery to, to basically do a, 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 a hemigastrectomy on him. And the attending says, go ahead and get started. And he never shows up. And when I open the kid up, he's got situs and versus. His, his liver is where his spleen should be, and his spleen is where his liver should be, and the anatomy is all screwed up. And so I'm, I'm doing a gastrectomy as a third-year resident, uh, a situs and versus kid that's bleeding out. That's scary. <laughs> that is really scary. You've got to do it all backwards, and you've got to hope that you, you don't cut something that kills them. That, that was the, the worst case I was ever involved in. But orthopedically, um, I had a young lady uh, with a, about seven months pregnant with a both column acetabular fracture and protrusio. That putting her to sleep and operating on, you know, two inches away from um, an infant's head and worrying about whether that infant was going to stop breathing um, or, uh, you know, the uh, heart rate go down. Um, that was, that was the, the, that was the worst. I, I, she, she, we did okay. The baby did okay. She did okay. Um, we couldn't make it anatomic without really getting the, 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 uh, the fetus screwed up. She ended up with a total hip but did fine and the baby did fine, but I, that was not a fun case.